Hello, everybody. You're listening to the American Exception Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Good. This is part one of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. In this episode, you'll hear the story behind the creation of Oliver Stone's 1991 motion picture, JFK. We'll be discussing the film and its unique historical legacy. I want to thank the people who made this happen. Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored, our series producer, Jim Diaginio of KennedysandKing.com, the incomparable Abby Martin of Empire Files, and Mock Orange for providing our music. Lastly, I want to thank the Truth and Reconciliation Committee for their efforts in seeking the truth about the political assassinations of the 1960s. Learn more at americantruthnow.org. Hello, this is Abby Martin. Welcome to the first episode of Destiny Betrayed. December of 2021 marks the 30th anniversary of the premiere of Oliver Stone's JFK. This film holds a number of unique distinctions. As Oliver Stone pointed out in the wake of spurious preemptive attacks against the film from outlets like the Chicago Tribune, quote, never before in the history of movies had a film been attacked in first draft screenplay form, end quote. Later, the great Michael Parenti added that, quote, JFK is the only movie I know that continues to be attacked four years after its run, end quote. Parenti was understating it. In 2017, 26 years after the fact, the Washington Post wrote that, quote, historians may have to hold their noses and thank JFK, a 1991 blockbuster that conflated the historical record with conspiratorial fantasies. End quote. This gratuitous insult was part of the paper's grudging acknowledgement of another singular accomplishment. JFK is the only film to have led to the passage of a major piece of national legislation, the JFK Records Act of 1992. As a result of this law, vast amounts of documents pertaining to Kennedy's presidency and assassination were pried away from the national security state. Among many other revelations, the declassified documents shed new light on JFK's Vietnam withdrawal plans and exposed how the Pentagon tried and failed to convince Kennedy to authorize Operation Northwoods, a deadly false flag campaign designed to justify a U.S. invasion of Cuba. Another important JFK assassination date is approaching. There's an October deadline for President Biden to force the CIA to finally comply with the JFK Records Act by releasing records that the agency has thus far illegally kept hidden from the public. This comes at a time when Oliver Stone is still searching for a U.S. distributor for his new JFK documentaries. The two-hour JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass and the four-hour version entitled JFK, Destiny Betrayed. Further substantiating much of what Stone presented in JFK, the new films are based in large part upon information that was only made available through the JFK Records Act. The fact that these films are still without U.S. distribution speaks volumes about our controlled media. After all, Stone's JFK earned over $200 million worldwide. More recently, an Oliver Stone interview covering the JFK assassination has over 1 million views on YouTube. Clearly, people are still interested in what Stone has to say about the case. For all of these reasons, and more, we're kicking off this series with a discussion on the film JFK. This episode features our host Aaron Good in conversation with two luminaries, James D. Eugenio, 
our producer and the co-creator of Stone's two new JFK films, and Zachary Sklar, Oliver Stone's co-screenwriter for JFK. Jim and Zach, it's great to be here with you. Thank you, Lauren. Um, so, Zach, I wanted to start with you and ask you about your uh, background. You were something of a, a lefty mainstream writer. You worked with The Nation. You taught at Columbia School of Journalism. Uh, what what made you more radicalized over time such that you would tackle uh, a subject like JFK? Well, your characterization of who I am might might have to have a little revision. Uh, I'm a red diaper baby. Uh, my parents were communists and my father was a blacklisted screenwriter. So I was radicalized from the time I was born. Um, it is true that I worked at The Nation, but the truth is, uh, and also that I did teach at uh, Columbia Journalism School. I went to Columbia Journalism School. Uh, but I, I actually, before I worked at The Nation, I had actually worked with Bill Shop and Ellen Ray on Sheridan Square Press, uh, editing several books about the CIA by former CIA uh, agents who had turned against the agency. Uh, later, I ended up uh, working as the executive editor for The Nation, uh, filling in for, for Richard Lingaman when he was on leave. But uh, I, I, I think I was always radical. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it was a big transformation there. Okay, well, thank you for the clarification there. When I was when I was in college is when uh, when I first heard of Jim Garrison. I mean, I I was fifteen when the assassination happened, and I I remember the the weekend very vividly. Um, and of course, anyone who watched went through that and saw you know uh, Oswald being uh, you know killed in the basement of you know with seventy police. Uh, around him had to think something was fishy. And so I had always believed that there was something fishy about the whole thing. And I never believed the Warren Report. Uh, but it wasn't until Ramparts Magazine in 1968 or whenever it was, uh, published a cover story about Jim Garrison and his investigation that I, I started to get interested. And I was not a researcher. I was not a, an assassination buff by any means. But I, I had never accepted the, the War Commission official story. So you worked at uh, Sheridan Square Press and uh, you helped to help them to publish some uh, books by CIA dissidents like uh, Ralph, Ralph McGahey, right? That was one of them. Ralph um, McGahey, that was the first one. Deadly Deceits, it was called. My 25 Years in the CIA. Yes. Yeah, that might be. It's either in the. It was either a covert action magazine article or a, uh, or maybe in that book where he talks about how he was the custodian of a of the Indonesia study of 1965 that was very highly guarded. I guess it's never been released, but that well, according to him, that it, it was a sort of um, considered by the agency to be a master class of covert action. I guess so much so that we've never even really gotten the full details of that. Well, um, he he was stationed in Indonesia, but. In his book, he was required to uh, sign a you know an agreement that basically uh, it was a non-disclosure agreement, and so basically the 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 agency had a, a right to review everything that was in the book. Uh, they basically got rid of everything that he had to say about Indonesia. They didn't want to acknowledge 
that the CIA had even been in Indonesia because, you know, a million people were killed and uh, it was horrible. But he could not talk about it because that was one of the things that they uh, they censored. When, the way we got around that censorship in other cases, I mean, they tried to censor many things in that book, but the way we got around it was that Ralph had had a lot of, uh, he, had, he had a comprehensive uh, uh, uh catalog of all the books that had been written about the CIA by many of whom were were written by people who were sympathetic to the agency or had been high officials in the agency. And the rule was that if they had mentioned that there was a base in Philippines, then if they were, you know, if they were able to do it, then why couldn't Ralph do it? And so we, you know, with an ACO, with the help of an ACLU lawyer, and Bill Schaap, who was the pub, co-publisher, uh, you know, they went through, through line by line, and there were like 130 things that they tried to uh, censor, uh, and we got a lot of them put back in because there were equivalent uh, mentions in in books that were sympathetic to the CIA. But Indonesia was not one that was able to uh, they were able to get back in there that they successfully censored, and they probably have to this day. Yeah, it was a Ralph McGahey quote in, in in one of those article, one of his articles, or in one of his books, where he says that the CIA, with this this covert operations apparatus, allows them to basically falsify, uh, you know, world events. And then the the quote, as I recall, it was, uh, "Today's fake news is tomorrow's fake history," uh, which I think is very relevant to you know things like Indonesia and also the you know the Kennedy assassination, pretty clearly. Um, so let me ask, how did you eventually come into contact with, uh, with Jim Garrison personally? And what, what were your perceptions of him when you, when you were going into that relationship? And uh, how did that evolve? Well, it, it all came through Bill Schaap and Ellen Ray, who, as you know, were the, were the co-founders, along with Lou Wolf, of Covert Action, what was originally called Covert Action Information Bulletin, and became Covert Action Quarterly. And then they spun off, Bill, Bill and Ellen spun off and uh, started the publishing house, Sheridan Square Press, which published you know, books by former CIA agents who turned against the agency, but also published Destiny Betrayed by, by Jim. So uh, one of the books that came along uh, after I edited several of these books, I was working as a freelance editor for them. I had met Bill Schaap because when I was... Uh, more mainstream journalist editing a legal magazine, Bill Schaap had, uh, and Bill was the editor of the Military Law Reporter. Uh, he had submitted an article about military law to this magazine, Juris Doctor, and I'd published it, but I had not met Bill. Uh, but I knew that he was a you know, brilliant mind and a wonderful writer. I met him at the uh, American Writers Congress in 1981 that actually Victor Navasky of The Nation organized. Uh, and that was the first time I met Bill and Ellen. And shortly after that, they asked me to edit Ralph McGeehy's book because they were looking for an editor. So after editing several of those books, along came this manuscript uh, from Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison had, and, and, and it was submitted to Bill and Ellen. Why? Because uh, Jim had been asked to, well, he had a contract with Prentice Hall, mainstream publisher, to uh, write about the Kennedy assassination, and he 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 would send a chapter to his editor, and the editor would say, "This is great. 
send me another one, he'd send another one, he'd say, this is great. And then at the end of it, the book was finished, and the publisher said, the editor said, I can't publish this. And Jim was convinced that there had been intervention from the CIA. Uh, and so he was looking for a publisher that was CIA proof, essentially. And through a mutual acquaintance in New Orleans, Mary Howell, who was a National Lawyers Guild uh, a lawyer, uh, who knew Bill and Ellen, uh, Jim submitted the manuscript to, to them because they were CIA proof. You know, they were actually not the CIA's enemy number one because they had, at covert action, uh, they had been publishing a, a column called Naming Names in which they actually identified uh, CIA, CIA employees who were uh, who were disguised as embassy employees around the world, and they published their names. And that's why they were targeted, uh, and the uh, identity, uh, Intelligence Identities Protection Act was actually passed in 1983, uh, and it was, it was really directed at, at covert action and at Philip Agee. And, of course, when they passed that legislation, uh, Bill and Ellen stopped publishing, and Lou Wolf, they all stopped publishing the names of agents. In, in covert action. And in, in fact, the only person ever ever prosecuted under that law was Scooter Libby many years later uh, for leaking the whole thing about Valerie Plain being a CIA agent. Uh, so, so Bill and Ellen just stopped doing it. But because of that reputation they had, Jim felt comfortable submitting his manuscript to them because he knew that the CIA would never be able to tamper with them. So they ha handed me the manuscript and it was a, a scholarly kind of work, you know, it was source noted and all that, but it was done in the third person and it was uh, done as a, as a historical, you know, as a, a, a history. Um, and it, you know, purported to be an objective history. And I read it and I said, well, this is all very interesting, but it sort of misses the point and nobody's going to ever believe that this is credible coming from someone who was a major player in this in this uh, in this whole affair you're the only person who ever prosecuted anybody in the in the in, in the Kennedy assassination and people have slandered you over the years and so I think you've missed the, the boat here I mean I you know as much as I like the book it's not the book you should be publishing I mean you should I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news but you have to do a page one rewrite and you have to write it first person and take people through. And he didn't want to do this. He said, I can't do that. I don't want the uh, focus to be on me. That's what they did during the trial. They made it all about me. And I don't want that. I want it to be about the facts and so forth. And I said to him, look, if you can take people through the process that you went through, where Jim was not a radical guy, he had been in the FBI, he had been in the military, he had been a district attorney for many years. He had believed in the government and he believed in the Warren Commission report initially. Uh, I said, if you can take people from the place where you began to the, point, to the point where you believed that the CIA was involved in the assassination of the president, step by step, laying out the evidence that persuaded you of this, the audience will go with you. The readers will go with you and they will agree with you. That he got.
And he said, okay, I'll do it. And I'll write it first person. And, and, and I said, well, let's, you know, do it as a detective story. You're the detective and do it as a whodunit. And he said, no, it's going to be a why done it. And that's what ended up being the book. And he, he rewrote, um, he wrote from, rewrote from page one, doing it first person. Jim was a very good writer. Uh, and he'd send me these chapters, uh, by Federal Express. That was my introduction to Federal Express. Uh, he was a judge at the time and uh, in New Orleans, and he'd send them from the office, and I'd edit them and send them back. And that's how the book uh, got written. I think that was probably the wise choice there. Uh, as a historian, you know, he, he seemed to be uh, handicapping himself, really taking away his best asset, I, I think. I mean, it was good that he had the, the you know, the, the intellect to get into the details of the case the way that he did, but he's a historical figure, you know? So that, I think that makes, that yeah, makes he perfect could not, sense. He did not pull off being a, an objective historian. I mean, he, you know, he had, he had a, he was a major player in this and he had never answered his critics. He had been, he had been trashed as part of a CIA uh, operation that we now know about because there was an, uh, a document that was, if, um, uh, leak from the Freedom of Information Act uh, that that was about how the critics of the Warren Commission would be uh, treated in the press by the, what they called the propaganda assets, meaning writers and editors of the CIA, and they and and they would say that the uh, critics of the Warren Commission were uh, egomaniacal, careless in their facts. Uh, you know, uh, financially motivated and all the, all these things that were said about Garrison. And, um, uh, so, and, but he had never replied to those things. Jim's attitude was why get into a pissing contest with a skunk? That's what he used to say. But, um, but I said to him, look, you know, this is your opportunity to set the record straight, to tell the story from your point of view, and it'll be there. And that's what he did. Yeah, he he. It was perhaps a mistake not to answer his critics directly, like Oliver did when JFK came out. But then again, it's you can also say how how much it only helps the people that are really following the story to read the responses. I mean, it, it, as as we'll get into later, but the the way yeah, that I Oliver that he, did, he didn't that he didn't answer ever. I mean, he did he did when he was attacked in the in the NBC doc, uh, white paper. Uh, he, he, there was a thing at the time, uh, called the fairness doctrine, which it, you could actually appeal to the FCC. And, and, and if you were slandered, they, and they agreed, they would award you, uh, prime time. And he got a half hour of prime time for free to reply to NBC. And he did that. Uh, it's on the DVD, uh, of the director's cut. You can see the whole reply. So he did do some, some replying at the time. Yeah, that was the the Walter Sheridan NBC thing that he was able to re to respond to. Um, yeah, they didn't they didn't give him a I guess the equivalent after the Johnny Carson thing. I guess since he was allowed to be there in the audience, but um, you almost wish he could have put Johnny Carson on the on the stand or something, and then have asked him who who told you to ask me those questions or something like that. Um, Okay, so with the time frame for this is Jim Garrison's working on this in like the mid '80s, and then he comes to you, or he 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 got turned down after doing the whole thing, 
by a bigger, the bigger publishing house and then comes to you around 86 or 87. Is that right? Comes to yeah, Sharon Square Press. I think it was 87. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea was that the book would be published on the 25th anniversary of the assassination. So it would be, that would be 1988, November uh, 22nd, 1988. And I think that was the intention of the Prentice Hall also. It's just that they they, they decided not to do it. <laughs> yeah. Which it would have been a you know something that you could have sold at that time, you would think. But it's it's funny when the argument that all these things are commercial related and that the market decides these things, but that doesn't always play out that way, especially with these radioactive things. Uh which makes the film all the more remarkable that it was such a, a commercial success. But so speaking of that. Um, how did Oliver Stone uh, and Jim Garrison get connected and how did he uh, get involved in this, in this project? Uh, I think uh, our listeners would like well, to know that was, story. that was because of Ellen Ray. Ellen and Bill were the publishers of the book. From Sher- they were shared in Square Press. And when the book came out, it really was published to a resounding silence because that's the way Garrison was treated in the mainstream media. But... Oliver was going to Havana for to the film festival, and he was going to get an award, I believe, for Salvador. Bill Schaap and Ellen Ray were frequent visitors to Cuba, and they happened to be there at the same time. And they got stuck in an elevator together in the Hotel Nacional. And Ellen, as this was described to me by Oliver later, uh, Ellen was this brassy, very aggressive woman who kept saying to him, you should make a film about the Kennedy assassination and, and this is the book you should base it on. And, and, uh, Jim Garrison was a hero and all this. And, and Oliver was very uncomfortable and he basically just promised that he would read it just to get her off his back. And he thought, you know, Oh my God, I'm happy to be rid of her. And then, uh, he thought he would never hear from her again. And then the next day she sent the book over to him to his hotel and, uh, He's, he didn't read it for a couple of weeks, but then he was filming Born on the Fourth of July in in Asia, and he had a 14-hour plane ride, and he pulled the book out and he read it, and he immediately got intrigued, and he called up. He called Ellen and Bill and said, well, I, I don't know what to do about this. I, I really like this book, but don't push me, don't push me. Uh, they weren't pushing him at all, of course, but he said, give me a few days. And, and he called back a few days later. And he said, I read it a couple more times. I would really, I want to option this book. And I don't know. I don't have time. I'm working on this other film. Uh, I want to get going on this project. Who can I get? And Ellen said, well, Zach's been working on this with Jim for a couple of years. You know, he knows this material backwards and forwards, which, which I don't now, by the way, but I did then. <laughs> Uh, so, um, how about we put him in touch? And so he, she put me on the phone with him immediately and he described the way he wanted the film to, to, to look. I mean, basically he said, uh, I, I, I want it to be based on, uh, you know, the, the model for the models are Rashomon and Z because the Gavras film, uh, the Rashomon, you know, is, is a story about a crime, but it's told from different people's perceptions and uh, from, you know, different points of view. And it uses the storytelling technique of you're in a courtroom kind of situation. It's 
it's set in many centuries ago in Japan, but it's it's a their version of a courtroom. And you know, uh, the person testifying starts to tell the story. It goes back into live action in the past. Sometimes you have voiceover. Then it weaves back into the present and comes back to the person telling the story. And that's exactly the technique that we used in JFK. Uh, Z, of course, was a, a film about political assassination, and you know it was it was a good model for us. Um, and Oliver said, "I want to see the assassination in the first reel. I want to see it in the eighth reel. I want to see it by the end. And each time I see it, I want to see it with more illumination from different perspectives." And he said, "I said, well, how do you want me to do this?" And he said, "Begin at the beginning." And go to the end and just write everything. He said, I don't care how long it is. Just write it scene by scene. Put everything in. And that's so that's what I did. I, I worked on it for about a year on my own. I, you know, I went and did a lot of interviews and did a lot of research. I went down to New Orleans and worked with Jim and went through his files and so forth. Uh, that was beyond the book. I mean, we had already done a lot of that work for the book, but this was beyond that. We did a lot of interviews with people who were still around uh, in New Orleans. Um, and then, you know, after the first, and, and I presented Oliver with a 550-page triple-spaced document. I didn't even know what the proper screenplay format was. Um, I thought, you know, as an editor of books, I, I, I left, you know, triple-spaced so that he would have room to write his comments and, and so forth. But that that's not the way it worked in, in film. So. Uh, Oliver rewrote that. He condensed it. Uh, he added material uh, that had been learned uh, by citizen researchers over the next, you know, intervening 25 years. A lot had come out because of the work of really dedicated researchers like Jim Eugenio here and others. And he wanted to incorporate that material into the film. He thought that people seeing this you know, 25 years later, or 30 years later, whatever it was, would would benefit from having the knowledge that we now knew rather than just what, you know, be limited to what Jim Garrison was able to find out at the time, which was by definition limited because there was such a cover-up and, and the government was withholding so much information. So he optioned a book by Jim Mars, uh, called Crossfire, which was sort of a compendium of a lot of the research that had been done. And so he was able to incorporate um, information that, that Jim Garrison could not have known at, at, at the time in 1968, 1969. Yeah, it, he, and when the production starts, he's able to get, you know, a, a pretty fantastic cast of actors. It's really sad that uh, Ed Asner just died uh, recently. Yeah. Um, he seems like a thoroughly great guy, and he's very memorable of Guy Bannister, who is, I, I can't think of an instance where uh, someone played someone on screen so diametrically opposite to their, to their own, uh, you know, personality, but he does a, he's a great drunken uh, hard right winger uh, in that, in that film. Do you know, Based on your sense of it, and I mean, I know you weren't working as much with the actual actors, but 
was he able, was Oliver able to do that because he was the hot director at the time coming off of, uh, you know, platoon and born on the 4th of July. And yeah, that was a, that was a big reason for it. Um, and also, uh, each one was different. I mean, Kevin Costner came on board after the, the, the lead role had been offered to a couple other people who had, who, who declined it. But Kevin Costner was going to take a, a leave of a year for, after he'd made Dances with Wolves and he, you know, won Oscars for that. And, and he was tired. He directed it and, and acted in it and he got a lot of accolades, but he, you know, he was ready to take a vacation, but his wife at the time read Garrison's book and she said to him, you have to do this. And so he did, he read the book and then he was, he, he came on board. Once he came on board, you see Oliver, you know, had the clout, because uh, he was an Oscar-winning director, Kevin Costner was going to be the lead actor. He was as, at the top of his fame at that point, and then the word got around that this was going to be about the Kennedy assassination, and then everybody in Hollywood who was a fan of Oliver's and you know knew that he was going to do a political film about the Kennedy assassination, they started to come to him. So Asner, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau. All these people started, they wanted to be part of it and they were willing to work for, for scale. Not, you know, they were not in this to, to make a buck, but they wanted to be part of something that they also felt strongly about. I mean, these were people who, who were political and, uh, and felt that they wanted to be part of, uh, you know, a film that would actually, you know, get to the truth or at least try to get to the truth of what some, something that had been, you know, a, a national wound for so long. Yeah, who were the other actors that uh, were considered before Costner to play Jim Garrison? Uh, Mel Gibson was one of them. He turned it down, I think. Um, trying to think who else. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, yeah. Those two. Yeah, Ford I could sort of imagine. Mel Gibson I have a harder time I have a harder time imagining. Well, the irony is I thought always when I was writing it I thought I thought of um, <laughs> John Voight, of all people, who at the time, you know, it was I was thinking of the John Voight from Coming Home, that film, not the John Voight who became a right-wing nut later. <laughs> but I thought he was a persuasive, uh, you know, uh, actor and, and appealing. I, You know, I didn't imagine Costner, actually, um, but I think in the end he he was not, I mean, having known Jim Garrison, he was not Jim Garrison. I mean, he was, he was, more the sincere, honest guy that you can trust, who's at the center of all this craziness and all these characters who are bizarre. Uh, but he gives you a solid central figure um, who you can trust, and I think that's what Oliver wanted. By the way, there's a there's a if you can believe it, it this is true. There's actually another documentary coming out about the year long controversy over the release of JFK. And the guy called me a few weeks ago and he said, Jim, if you can believe it, I was actually planning this before I heard about the documentary. All right. It was going to be on the anniversary of JFK, which of course is coming up in a couple of months. All right. And so he's actually went through all of, and you can imagine all the clips he had to go through because no film in history ever had the, uh, the political and social impact that JFK did, all right? And so there's a, a film coming out that's going to document that whole controversy 
which of course ended up with the ARB, the creation of the ARB, because whosever idea it was, it was a great idea to tack on at the end of the movie that the files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are classified until the year 2029. That was a brilliant stroke. Okay, that got everybody upset. All right, and um, this is a true story. Stokes, who uh, Louis Stokes, who was the chairman of the House Select Committee, went to see the movie with his daughter, and he had no idea that was going to be up there. Of course, at the yeah. end of the film, and so as they were walking out, she goes to him, "Dad, why did you do that? Why?" <laughs> <laughs> And so then he said, okay, I, 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 I guess that was a mistake. And so uh, he was one of the prime movers, you know, to get the, uh, the JFK Act of 1992 passed. And, of course, you had all these people, including Oliver, you know, and Howard Willens and people and Bob Blakey and Stokes was another one who testified before that committee. Just to clarify, the AARB is the Assassination uh, Records Record and Review Board. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a result of this act that was passed by Congress as a result of all the letters that they got from people who'd seen the movie and seen that that at the end of the movie and and were outraged. I mean, and it was juxtaposed at a time when perestroika was happening in the Soviet Union, and people were saying, "Wait a minute, <laughs> the Soviets are releasing releasing all this information, and why are we covering up our information?" It was in the wake of letters, and that was the result. Was was that that legislation that that created that review board, and which which led to the release of all these files that are really the basis of of Jim's, uh, you know, film. The, 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 the thing about the JFK, contract. the thing about JFK, and me and Oliver did a little Fox uh, video for their uh, for their platform online. And I, and I said this on during the, and they actually kept it in. I said, in, in in my experience, no movie in the whole history of cinema ever had the impact that this movie did because it's the only one I can remember that was actually attacked seven months before it was released in the theaters. All yeah. right, and and by the Chicago Tribune was the first one. And then the next month, it was by George Lardner in the Washington Post. And I'm talking to Oliver. Lardner actually flew down to New Orleans and Dallas and was on the set. He was walking around the set. This is like six months before the movie is final edited and then released in the well, theaters. Actually, it was before that because what happened is it, it was also there was a, a Oliver's very paranoid about uh, his scripts getting out. Uh, and so they were all numbered scripts for people who had them. But one of them got leaked and it and went to George Lardner and one of them went to the Chicago Tribune and one of them went to Time Magazine. And actually, the writer at Time Magazine was somebody, Richard Zoglin, who I've worked with in magazines before. And I knew him very well. And I, he, I, you know, he, he called me and I said, wait a minute, you're going to write an article about a screenplay a first draft of a screenplay that's been stolen that is going to go through many more drafts that hasn't even gone into production. And you're going to be writing an article about this. What, what kind of journalism is this? Uh, you know, are you going to, you know, I mean, imagine if a newspaper had, had, had 
had written a review of, of uh, War and Peace, you know, in the first draft that Tolstoy had written. I mean, it's insane. Uh, and he said to me, it's beyond, it's, it's beyond me. I mean, I, it goes way, way higher, meaning the, the, the higher, you know, the, the big editors at, at Time Inc. were really in charge of this. And one of those big editors in Time Inc. was Richard Stolle, who was one of the people who, who, uh, ended up making their careers on the day that Kennedy was assassinated. Among them, Tom Wicker, Dan Rather, Robert McNeil, and Dick Stolle, who became the editor-in-chief of Time, Inc. And Dick Stolle was the one who procured the Zapruder film for Time Life. Um, so, anyway. And, and wait a minute, finish the story. And then they didn't show it to the public until 1975. <laughs> right. Right. And right. It was actually, but it actually, they, it was shown at the trial, at Shaw's trial. Yeah, that's, that was that's the first true. It, was, it had been locked up in, in, in a vault in Time Life, and it was only because Garrison subpoenaed it uh, for the Shaw trial that that was the first time that the public had actually seen the thing. And, you know, when you see it, you know, there's not a person in the world except for maybe Dan Rather, who was the first person who saw it and reported it absolutely backwards and said that it showed the head going forward when, in fact, it shows the head going backward. Uh, he was probably the only person in the world who interpreted that film that way. And that's why they didn't want anybody to see it. See, and I think I, and I'm really glad Zach brought this up because there's even other people like Walter Cronkite who was yeah. on the air for like three straight days, all right? Peter Jennings actually came down from Canada to cover the Kennedy assassination. And see, the thing is, and, and I really believe this was one part of the terrible, terrible reaction against the film, is that, as Zach said, there were some very major players in the media who sort of made, well, not sort of, they did, like Dan Rather, who made their name off of getting the Kennedy assassination wrong. Okay, exactly. They got it wrong. Okay, right. so here comes this movie, which is going to go ahead and explode all those myths that these people got wrong. So they had a vested interest in keeping this cover story in place. And that, I believe, is one of the reasons why the film was so bitterly attacked 31 stories in the New York Times before the day the movie premiered. Yeah. Well, and Tom Wicker wrote a very devastating column, which I wrote a, a long letter, uh, you know, to him personally, because I, I had admired Tom Wicker, frankly. He had been a very good mainstream journalist, an honest journalist. I thought he was terrific during the Attica Rebellion. And here he is writing this article, a column attacking JFK movie and saying, this movie is going to create distrust in the government. And I had to write to him and say, Tom, <laughs> uh, you know, we live in a country where the government doesn't automatically have the trust of the people. It has to earn the trust of the people. If it doesn't, then the people have every right to not only question it, but throw it out. And how are you, you know, saying that the that that the movie is creating distrust in the in the people? No, it's the it's the government that's creating the distrust by its actions. I never heard from him, but he yeah. had made his career that day. He was a, a young reporter that day in in Dallas, also. 
See, and, uh, and this is what it shows. Go ahead. To his credit, Robert McNeil was the only one of this group who, who later um, re- realized that he, he possibly made a mistake and changed his attitude towards it. See, what's so yeah, weird that- about this is if you watch the press conference that Malcolm Kilduff, who was the acting press secretary because Challenger was on a plane, uh, I think, headed to uh, Hawaii, all right, he actually says during that press conference, President Kennedy was killed. And then he points to his head you know, by a bullet through the right temple. Now, can't these guys say, wait a second, how did, how did he get killed with a bullet through the right Oswald is behind him the whole time, you know? And somehow that didn't matter. Well, they got the official story from somewhere, and uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know how that happened. You know, that would be interesting to track down how it actually got put out. But you know, that was that was an interesting part of when I went down to research for the movie and went through Jim's files. That's when I first came upon this letter from Fletcher Prouty um, that he had written to Jim at the time of Jim's book coming out, and it said. I'm very interested to see what you wrote and what your experience was. Let me tell you what my experience was at the time. And he laid out essentially what's what the story that's in the, the X scene, although we, we added to that considerably. But basically that letter said, I was this guy who was, uh, you know, uh, in covert operations and I was a liaison between the, the uh, CIA and the military. And uh, I was sent to, uh, New Zealand and, you know, the newspaper article, and I thought this was a cover story. All that stuff that's in in that scene was in that letter. And I thought, wow, (laughs) Uh, this is is really something. Of course, Jim didn't know any of this at the time, but we decided we had to put this in the movie. Uh, And by the way, I have to say, that scene, you know, if you if you wanted to put together like a twelve minute uh, commercial or whatever you want to infomercial about how the the whole terrible things the CIA had done, you know, in the last twenty years, I don't see how you could get it any better than you did in that. And it was capped by Donald Sutherland in this. He was a better Fletcher Prouty than Fletcher Prouty. Okay, yeah. he was so good in that part, you know, so convincing, you know, uh, just a master class in acting, you know. That, I thought that was just a wonderful, wonderful sequence. I felt that way the first time I saw it. I feel that way today. Well, it's interesting because we did discuss that at length because, um, you know, I was coming from journalism and Oliver was the filmmaker. And when I you know, we, we wrote that scene, you know, I, I wrote the first draft of it, but then Oliver added a lot of that material. It came from other sources. It wasn't just from Prouty's letter. Um, and I said to him, you know, this is a lot of information. It's going to be very dense, you know, and how are people going to be able to take all this in? And Oliver said, you know, people are smarter than you think. Trust your audience. If they don't get it all the first time, they'll come back and they'll watch it again and they'll get more the next time. And it turns out that is absolutely true from, you know, what I've been told by 
you know, people who've watched the film many times. Um, you know, the, I thought that, you know, this is going to drag the whole film film down. And it's, you know, now, I, you know, most people will say that is the most important scene in the film. He's and, another you know, guy. And I, I have to say, I have to say, that's exactly the reaction I had when I saw it. The I have to see this again because I really kind of got lost, you know, with all that yeah. detail. And so I did. I went back and I watched it again. And this time I really understood what they yeah. were doing and what they were saying. And that's and that, and Zach, that's it's so terrific the way that then bridges over into what I believe is the main reason that the film was attacked so bitterly because yeah. it was the first time the American public understood that Johnson did not continue Kennedy's policies in Vietnam. And in right. fact, he knowingly changed those policies. Okay. And then he tried to maintain that I'm just continuing what JFK did, knowing that he was actually breaking what JFK was going to do. Exactly. Uh, to be fair, you know, that that sequence was written in two different parts in the first earlier draft. And the editors actually uh, decided that it would be better to put it all together and in one place. And so they they took scenes that were, you know, the, the later part, which which is sort of like, how did this all happen? You know, the, when he speculates about how it how it happened put that all together with the other stuff and make it one sequence. And the, the editors were really masterful and they did a great job with that. Well, when, when you said Z, okay, yeah. that one of the models was Z, well, one of the incredible things about Z is the editing. Okay. Yeah. And, and you can see how, you know, JFK, I actually want to think a step beyond, you know, Z. That was just a, one of the best edited and by the way, photograph films, and those are the two Oscars it won. Bob yeah. Richardson won an Oscar for the photography, and then the two editors won an Oscar, you know, for for the editing, which was just absolutely brilliant, I I, I believe. Now, getting back to this Vietnam thing, you know, Zach probably remembers this because it's probably uh, etched into his consciousness. So many people went after this movie. On this point, that what are you trying to say? That Kennedy was some kind of a peacenik or something, or you, that he's really going to withdraw? And by the way, and I'm sure Zach remembers this, it wasn't just the mainstream. It wasn't just the right wing. It was the people on the left. They were attacking the movie on that on, on that very ground. But yeah, they were Alexander right. Coburn was one of them in right. the nation. Yeah, right. And so what t they turned out to be right, though, because as the ARB declassified, the, I believe one of the most important documents, if not the most important document, was McNamara's SECDEF meeting in May of 1963. The SECDEF meetings were the meetings about Vietnam where he would fly the State Department, the CIA and the Pentagon into, to review the progress of what's going on in the war. And so at that meeting, and we have this in black and white now, he's asking for the withdrawal schedules that he requested several months before. And they all hand them in. They all pass them forward to him. He looks at them and he says, this is too slow. We're getting out faster. That disclosure by the ARB 
was actually convinced the New York Times, to New, I'm, I'm not kidding, the New York Times ran a story in late 1967 that was headlined something like, Kennedy had planned to withdraw from Vietnam. All right. Now, did you now here here was my question. Did anybody ever call up Zach and Oliver and say, I'm sorry, you were right about this? Not no. to my knowledge. <laughs> no, no. The other thing that backs this up is that John Newman was given permission. See, John Newman struck up a relationship with McNamara after his book came out, all right? And they had more than one meeting about this issue. And McNamara gave John the permission to go out to the Pentagon and listen to his debriefs as he left, which I think was in November of 67. All right, he had to do a debrief before he left. All right, and so John drives out to the, to the Pentagon and uh, they didn't want to let him in. <laughs> so he said, well, call up McNamara because he gave me the permission to come here and listen to these things. All right, so they call him up and McNamara says, oh, yes, I did, let, let him in, he can listen to my debriefs. In those debriefs, McNamara says that the president and I had agreed that what we could do with Saigon is that we could send them equipment, we could send them advisors, we could send them trainers, but we couldn't fight the war for them. All right. And so once that was done, once that was done, we were leaving. And it didn't matter if they were winning or if they were losing, okay? But we were not going to fight the war for them. We weren't going to send them combat troops, all right? And this, of course, is exactly what the film said. If you remember, in November of 1961, at the big showdown meeting, you know, that's where Kennedy had issued NSAM 111, which said equipment, trainers, advisors, but no combat troops, all right? And that was a line that Kennedy would not cross the whole three years that he was in office. And Johnson was well aware of this, okay? He knew that Kennedy was not going to send combat troops in, all right? So that's another thing that we have now that certifies that what the film said was correct, all right? That's another new piece of information, which, of course, Nobody. <laughs> it's going to be in the film, though. John well, talks about it in the film. Also, the wording of of NSAM, uh, which the what is it the uh, the one right two sixty three two sixty three two seventy three the one that Johnson uh, signed four days after the wording of that actually changed from the yes. draft that Kennedy was given to the to the one that Johnson signed and the draft and crucial paragraph. And this is what, you know, Alexander Coburn didn't get was that in the, in the original draft, it basically says that the U S will train South Vietnamese forces to go undertake these combat and covert operations in the, in the final version, it says that the U S will carry out these operations. 
And that's what what the Gulf of Tonkin was. It was a U.S. operation, and it really triggered the entire U.S. involvement in, in the war and created mm-hmm. the war. So it was that, that change in wording in NSAM 273 that was so crucial that happened in four days right after Kennedy was killed. Right. And that, that was sort of like, you know, the, the hole in the dike, you know, the proverbial yeah. that gets exactly. bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, yeah. as Johnson escalates, you know, dur- during 1964. And of course, like in the film, we we say that, you know, Johnson had the Tonkin Gulf Resolution written before the Tonkin Gulf incident happened. You know, that really happened. That's the other thing. Yeah, right. Right. OK. So that's yeah. that's the cold kind of thing that I, as he's saying during the campaign, I do not want to send American boys to fight a war that Asian boys should be fighting, et cetera. The whole time he's planning to do this, you know, yeah. you know, it was, it was a very, you know, I don't know what to call it. You know, hypocritical is too mild a word, you know, yeah. treacherous is probably a better word for, for what Johnson did. And another thing that has come up in the declassified files is that, People left over in the Johnson administration that stayed over in who from the Kennedy administration by about 65, they understand what Johnson's doing and they're getting really angry about it is, you know, and they, the word that was put on is he's trying to put the war on Kennedy's tomb to distract from what he has done himself, you know? All right. And so that's how bad it got by about 1965. Of course, by 1965, you got 175,000 combat troops in Vietnam. There was not there was not one combat troop there on the day Kennedy was killed. And in 65, within 65, you got 175,000 there. Yeah. Well, the tragic thing is that none of this has been learned uh, in later administrations and Afghanistan. War is 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 the perfect example of what a disaster, uh, and 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 really recreated all the mistakes of Vietnam, and they still haven't learned. Right. And yeah, I I would guess that some of the I would guess that the chaos around some of that that they are putting on Biden, you know, I I studied somewhat uh, in my dissertation how the Joint Chiefs the military brass basically gave Obama no choice but to escalate. And he kind of knew this. He's like, you're giving me only two options. And, uh, you know, one, one of them is like just the same as, as another one. And, and, and they're all bad. Like you're basically painting me into a corner here. And, and Obama let them do that. Trump tried to get out. I would guess that the things that the resistance that Kennedy faced in terms of his own Vietnam policy and the, the, the fact that you had to have these extra meetings uh, you know, like the Honolulu meeting that Jim refers to that got declassified recently, the way that they he wanted more timetables and so on, that they were dragging their feet and that what happened in Afghanistan is probably similar to that. The, well, the military uh, Obama, doesn't want these things Obama to Obama was elected as a peace candidate and he did not do what Kennedy did. Kennedy resisted the Joint Chiefs. They wanted him to invade Cuba. He refused. Obama got the message. And I think all the presidents after Kennedy got the message. And if they didn't get it from the Kennedy assassination, they got it from the King 
and the RFK assassination as well, and the Malcolm X, all these assassinations happened. I think the message was pretty clear. If you were going to, you know, jeopardize the uh, uh, military industrial intelligence complex and its activities to bring uh, cheap labor and resources from around the world to bolster our economy, you are in trouble and you are risking your life. And I think Obama got that message, and that's why he did not have the guts to do what Kennedy did. And that's why we stayed in Afghanistan and and never should have stayed there. We never should have gone there in the first place. See, one of the the things that the film brought out, and again, I believe this is why it was that unbelievable reaction to the movie. Because my question was, well, wait a minute. You're going to tell me... Not one single person in the MSM noticed that one year later, <laughs> Johnson is talking about putting combat troops in Vietnam, something that Kennedy would not do. No, Nobody put that together at the time, that, that, that something is really wrong here, okay? And maybe Kennedy's assassination started, you know? And I exactly. think what these guys did in that script was they made it so clear the, what the connection was that the media didn't like being pounded over the head about it. Yeah. No. no, the media definitely reacted in a defensive way. And I did want to tell you one example of how crazy the media was. Um, you know, when the film came out, it, it was featured in cover stories in both Time Magazine and Newsweek, which at the time were a big deal. Now nobody pays attention to them, but at the time it was a big deal. The cover story headline on Newsweek was The Twisted Truth of JFK. And before that story came out, a researcher from Newsweek called me. And, you know, they, fact, they supposedly fact-checked before they published, right? Uh, So they called me and they said, you know, we're going to say that uh, the film is is, uh, inaccurate and that uh, Jim Garrison never set foot in the courtroom in reality. And I said, well, you know, it's true that he didn't conduct a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, cross-examinations and so forth. But he did give the opening statement and he did give the closing statement, about 80 percent of which. We quoted in the last scene of the movie. And I said, if you don't believe me, go to the transcript from the court. You'll see it there. Sure enough, the, mo- the, the article comes out. Garrison never set foot in the courtroom. And they're, telling us, and they're telling us that this is a twisted truth of JFK. Yes. And I just thought, you know, this is, this is how crazy it is. But Zach, you know, it's, it, Zach, Garrison's closing statement is in Kirkwood's book. They didn't have to even get the transcript. Okay, it's in it's in American Grotesque, which is a horrible book, but he did include Garrison's closing summation in it. That's how bad the media was about this, you know. And by well, the way, you know what's amazing about those two cover stories? In that week. Gorbachev came to New York City. And if you remember, all the crowds were going crazy about having this guy who's really a break with Russian history. You know, they stopped him on the street and everything. And and that should have been the cover story. 
But instead, they put JFK and they then they trashed the movie instead. Well, it's interesting to me because, you know, I, I was amazed actually that that Time Warner uh, you know, they they were the ones that had the Zap Ruder film and and they were Warner Brothers was the one that, that, that produced this movie and put up the money for it. I what I could only conclude from that was that money, commercial success really trumps everything for the media. That they if they think they're gonna sell more magazines by putting JFK on the cover and trashing, you know, the, it because they know that their role in, in this whole thing was <laughs> was terrible and, and it's exposed. Um, then they're going to put that on the cover and not Gorbachev. You know, it's, it's, and, and if, and why did they make this movie in the first place? Why did, you know, uh, it's true that the guys who were running Warner brothers had been there for 20 years and they had a free hand and they, you know, they, they, they could do it. I think the answer is they had, Oliver Stone and Kevin Costner and a slate of stars, and they thought they were going to make money. I don't think they even understood the movie, frankly. <laughs> in, in fact, you know, they they told Oliver, you know, it's too long. Uh, you know, you got to cut it, blah, 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 blah. And he said, look, you want to get somebody in to rewrite it? It's going to take years, you know. And so they said, okay, go ahead, you know. I, I think they thought they were going to make money, and that's really what it amounted to, that that trumps everything. Yeah, well, actually, you know that it, it it did make money because it, it made was a lot of money. Smash, it was a smash hit overseas. You know, yeah. it did over two hundred million. Oh you know, yes. o- overseas. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. The, the the Newsweek story is even worse than you say the cover because if it was just the twisted truth of JFK, you could think what well, that could be. That's ambiguous. You could think, well, you know, it is it is pretty twisted. But the subtitle was "Why Oliver Stone's New Movie Can't Be Trusted," just right, in right. case there was any, uh, you know, was anything up in the air about what their actual uh, position was on that. Um, so I, I want to um, talk a little bit about Garrison and the way that he, um, the way that he felt about this film. I know that he was on set some because he he plays Earl Warren. So what was it like? having him on set and who had the idea to cast him as Earl Warren? Well, that was Oliver. I, I did not, I was not on set for, for the, the shooting of those scenes. Um, I did hear about it. I know that, you know, Jim had been in an earlier film called the big easy and the new Orleans times Picayune who, who hated Jim uh, had reviewed it and said, Jim Garrison plays himself. Unconvincingly, <laughs> uh, and so when I, when they finished shooting the the uh, the scenes where Jim is Earl Warren, Oliver gave him a hug and said, "You've come a long way from the Big Easy." <laughs> uh, Jim is not well at the time. You could see from how he how he acts. He's you know he had heart problems and um, he he was not well, uh, but he did it and. Um, I think, you know, it was ironic and he sort of loved that he was playing Earl Warren, who, who had covered up the whole thing. So, uh, you know, I think Jim enjoyed it and Jim did not live to see the film released. Uh, he was sick and he, uh, they showed him a video 
version of it in his in his bed before he died, and he was very pleased with the way it had come out. Uh, he had he had been involved all along, and you know he'd seen drafts of the screenplay, which went through many drafts, by the way. Just as as Jim was saying, you know Oliver goes through a lot of drafts, and he he's a real stickler. And Jim Jim Garrison himself was very concerned uh, about what he called flying saucers. You know, he didn't want to have some flying saucer in there that uh, allowed people to dismiss the entire film because one thing was 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 uh, not, you know, you couldn't back it up. So, you know, it's we tried to be very clear about what was speculation and what was what was uh, uh you know, factual, and what was in dispute, um, and that's all in the in in the source notes of the uh, the book of the film, which you which you have there. Uh, here's yeah, was there a story about about this the uh, production of the film? And I got this from somebody who's actually on the set. The scene where Kevin Costner does the uh, single bullet, the path of the single bullet, and he has yeah. the people lined up in front of each other. In the middle of that scene, they were rehearsing it. Costner stopped. He sat down, put his head in his hands, and said, Oliver, they couldn't have said this. And so, so, and so Oliver had his researcher go ahead and get all the information you know, in a folder and give it to Costner, and he read it, okay? And he said, well, wait a minute. Who dreamed this thing up? And they said it was... It was Arlen Specter, and he goes, "Well, let's put his name in the script." Okay, so that's how he got in his three minutes of fame in the in the final screenplay was through Kevin Costner's ad lib. You know, <laughs> Arlen Specter was also one of the ones who was intimidating witnesses. He uh, he intimidated uh, uh, what's Jim Gene Hill? Hill. Who? Gene Hill. Yes, Gene Hill. Because I interviewed Gene Hill, that was one of the people I interviewed, and she told me that Arlen Specter had had tried to intimidate her, and she said, "I heard, you know, shots, and I heard more than uh, three shots." And he said, "No, that was firecrackers." And she said, "Well, you know, I shoot every week at target practice. I know the difference between a firecracker and a gun." And he said, "No, you know, we're going to make you seem crazy, like like uh, Oswald's mother." And he was really, you know, awful. And he, and he and he had them not transcribe this part of what he what he was saying to her. And he really did his best to shut her down. And that's the kind of guy this guy was. And he was United. He became a United States senator. Right. Yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's, we that's that his mention in the film would would get him unelected, but he he got elected anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that's the other aspect of it. Not only did these people Dan Rat like Dan Rather you know, make their careers by failing upwards, you know, with the Kennedy assassination. But Gerald Ford manages to become president without ever winning an election. I mean, yeah. Alan Specter becomes like one of the most, you know, long-serving senators in the second half of the 20th century, I think. I mean, he was there for a long time. And we have a couple of very interesting things in a documentary about Ford, all right? And uh, one of them is that... Of course, everybody knows he was on the Warren Commission. When he was president, all this uproar about the CIA and the FBI broke open. 
because of the church committee and the Pike committee. And he appointed a preemptive committee called the Rockefeller Commission to supposedly survey the crimes of the CIA on the domestic front. All right. And now putting Nelson Rockefeller in charge of such a, I don't know how that makes any sense, but anyway, that, that, that's what he did. And he put people like Lemnitzer, Lyman Lemnitzer, the guy who Kennedy fired as his joint chief of staff chairman, and he put Ronald Reagan on this commission. So there's a meeting, there's a, a, you know, a lunch meeting at the White House. And I think A.M. Rosenthal from the New York Times says, words to the effect, why did you appoint such a conservative committee to investigate the CIA? And he said, well, because there's matters of national security. And he said, like what? And Ford blurts out, like assassinations. <laughs> <laughs> and that's in Daniel Shore's book. And so that's, that's one thing that's in there. Then the other thing that we have in there is about Jerry Ford's meeting with Destang, the prime minister of France, Destang and met Kennedy. And he, he was, I think, the, uh, the secretary of the treasury at the time. All right. And he liked him. And so he said, you know, words of the effect, you know, Jerry, did you really, that's all you could come up with at this, this Oswald guy, you know, from the sixth floor with this, uh, you know, this, this not even a semi-automatic, this manual belt action rifle did this? And he says, no. He says, we figured out that there was really an organization behind this, but we couldn't find out who it really was. All right. And so <laughs> that was his excuse for, for doing what he did on the Warren Commission. All right. What Cyril Weck does a real job on, on, on Jerry Ford in, in, in the film, which I, I, I think you'll like, you know. I want yeah, to go the, back a little bit to Garrison and, and Oliver um, because their relationship, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't there with, with them during that the shooting of, of, of the scenes as they were warned, but, but uh, Jim told me about their first meeting. After Oliver had optioned the book, before he decided to make the movie, he went and he had read all the stuff, all the slanders of Jim, all the stories that he, you know, was in cahoots with the mafia and the story that Jack Anderson put out that he'd uh, molested a boy in the New Orleans athletic club and the sauna and all these, all these different uh, allegations and particularly focusing on his being covering up for Carlos Marcello, who was the sort of the reputed uh, head of the mob in New Orleans. And Jim told me that he, he basically was very patient. Jim never raised his voice. He was a very calm guy. And he basically uh, answered all his questions. He said he spent about three hours answering all these allegations and calmly just saying, you know, denying all these things. And then he said to Oliver, are you finished? And Oliver said, well, yeah. And, and Jim said, well, okay, now I think you should just pack up your things Take your cameras and all your production people and go up the river a bit and go make a movie about Carlos Marcello, because that seems to be what you're really interested in. <laughs> and Oliver said, are you serious? You're telling me that, that you don't want to make the movie? You're, you're, 
Now, Jim said, well, that's you seem to be interested in Carlos Marcelo, so go. <laughs> and Oliver later said, as when Jim said that, that's when he decided that he was going to make the movie because he realized that Jim was the real deal. He was not going to be, uh, you know, doing this to just get uh, publicity and all the stuff that people had said about him. And he said also he had the same feeling about Jim that he had he had about uh, Alger Hiss when he when he met Alger Hiss for the first time. Uh, for those people who don't know who Alger Hiss is, he was a high State Department official who was who was brought down by Richard Nixon when he was a congressman on the House Un-American Activities Committee. They claimed that he was a spy for Russia. And again, it was all uh, phony, ridiculous stuff. And uh, and Alger has always denied any anything like that. And, and, and this crazy guy, Whitaker Chambers, was the only one who, who accused him. And he came up with some pumpkin, you know, papers that supposedly were in a pumpkin that he hid. And it was a whole crazy story. But the point is that uh, Oliver met Alger Hiss, and he had the same feeling about Jim that he had about Alger Hiss, which is these guys were the real deal, and they they were not going to let anybody uh, intimidate them, and they were honest, and they were and they were to be believed, and that's when he decided to make the movie. Is when Jim said that to him. Yeah, the Hiss thing is, I think, a good analogy. I, I also find the. The, the sort of evidence about his guilt to be, you know, not so convincing. And I think it was John Dean who eventually came out and said, yeah, Charles Colson told me that uh, he, he admitted that they had working with the FBI fabricated the typewriter that was used as yeah. evidence against, against his. Yeah, so, in his case is a whole other story. I worked for a long time with a guy named Bill Rubin, uh, who was the head of the, uh, you know, the committee supporting Alger Hiss and uh, his book, unfortunately, never came out. He never he died before he could finish it. But uh, that's another one of these uh, absolute phony lies that's been sold to the public and they've somehow bought it. See, Jim yeah. Garrison, what, what was so amazing about Jim Garrison is that he never gave up. He took no. every shot that you could possibly take, you know, from the establishment. And there he is in 1987 writing this book, you know, to tell, to tell his own story. You well, know? that's, that's, that's right. And, and I, I, I try to say this when I talk to students every year at American university in Peter Kuznick's class, I try to communicate to them that the image that people have of Jim Garrison that's been put into the mainstream media is totally wrong. I mean, you know, they, they make him sound like this self-serving uh, publicity hound and, you know, lying, cheating character, you know, gothic character. And it couldn't be further from the person that I actually knew. I mean, he actually was an intellectual. He didn't he, he wouldn't go uh, one block down, you know, to, to get to get a campaign contribution from a bar owner who just wanted him to walk in the bar and. And, and shake his hand. The guy was going to give him five thousand dollar campaign campaign contribution. He wouldn't even do that. He, you know, he didn't. He wasn't into backslapping. He he didn't care about money. He didn't he didn't own a car. He didn't own anything except the books and stereo. He loved jazz. He loved big band jazz, and and the Kennedy assassination. He was obsessed with it, and he he never gave up. And he took every shot that they gave that they 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 pounded him with, and he. He didn't give up ever. 
And I was very pleased that he was able to see this film before he died because it vindicated him. Yes, and, and the other thing is, we now know, as an established fact, that Clay Shaw lied his head off yeah. when, 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 he, when he took the stand. He lied about every single material point. We, we now have the declassified FBI and the CIA documents. First of all, Clay Shaw did work for the CIA. He yeah. had a covert security clearance, and he was a very well-compensated contract agent. We have that in their documents now. We also know, and this is, this is really a stunner, the FBI knew that Shaw was Bertrand before Garrison arrested him. And do you know who told him this? Aaron Cohn, the chairman of the Metropolitan Crime Commission, who was a big ally of the Wegman brothers who defended Shaw. So in other words, they knew that Shaw was lying about this crucial point. That he did use that alias, you know. So, and I can and I can go through the whole thing. The FBI, if you follow their investigation and their informants and their information, if they would have been instead of in opposition to Garrison during the trial, if they would have been what they were supposed to be doing, which was supporting the DA, I have very little doubt that Shaw would have been convicted. You know. Well, Garrison's case was sabotaged from day one, and you know they 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 did not allow him to uh, uh, subpoena you know the the witnesses that he wanted. He tried to get uh, Alan Dulles and Richard Helms. None, you know, they wouldn't even the federal the U.S. attorneys wouldn't even serve the subpoenas. He tried to get the tax records of Oswald. He tried to get the the photos from the autopsy. Uh, all these things were denied. He had volunteers volunteers in quotes who came uh, to work with his investigation. And of course, these volunteers were uh, giving, you know, photocopying and giving all the, the, the information over to the defense so that they had all the information, uh, you know, that the, that the prosecution had. And, uh, and there was a working group, uh, according to, uh, uh, you know, the, what, what was his name? Uh, Marchetti. Victor, Victor Marchetti. Marchetti. Uh, who was who was in that group? Uh, that Helms had a working group to follow this uh, prosecution uh, the, from the very beginning. So they were out to sabotage uh, Garrison's uh, case from the very beginning, and they sent for all these phony witnesses. They f- sent phony volunteers. They, uh, you know, uh, who knows if they killed these witnesses that were potentially devastating witnesses? Them, you know, David Ferry and. Eladio uh, Del Valle, people like that. Uh, but the point is that people say that Shaw didn't get a fair trial. No, it was the people of uh, uh, Louisiana and the district attorney who never had a fair chance at a trial. They didn't. They sabotaged it from day one, and he was up against the CIA. And I have to say, this is the one thing you can say about Jim Garrison. Not only did he persist. One day, once I asked him, "How did you? How did you?" Uh, how could you stand up to the government like this? And he said, you know, I realized that the more I said that the CIA was involved, they, the harder they pushed, tried to push me down. And I knew that if, they, if there was nothing to it, they wouldn't push me down that way. They wouldn't be trying to destroy me. And I was, if they pushed me, I was going to push back. And this was something he learned from, from his mother, 
who was a mem- member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And uh, he said about her, uh, if she if uh, she got in a ring with Mike Tyson, he wouldn't last one round. <laughs> and it was too bad. We had a scene. I, I wanted to show why, how Jim, where did he get this from? That he, you know, the, that, that no matter how hard they, hard they tried to crush him, he would fight back. Where did that come from? Where did he get that strength? It came from his mother. And we had a scene in, in the original screenplay uh, where he goes to see his mother, and you, you understand that. You see where he's coming from, where, where she, you know, what kind of woman she was. It, and uh, uh, it was going to, Oliver wanted to cast it. Uh, who's the woman who plays uh, that detective? Uh, anyway, I forget her name. Uh, she's a famous uh, detective, you know. Miss Marple? Miss Marple, yeah. Okay. Uh, wh- whoever that woman is. She's a famous actress, but uh, it, 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 it got cut out. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, when you, when you get into the, which, I mean, I don't know how much this was Garrison's understanding at the time or yours either. You know, I would guess you probably would agree with this. That the issue with the CIA is not just, oh, it's this government bureaucracy that has a big budget. Or even just, it's, oh, and it's also got connections to the media publishing world and so on. It's, it's in the DNA of the CIA that it was created by these, you know, at the behest of these titans of Wall Street. And that they represent the, the pinnacle of economic and thus political power in, in the U.S. And they're sort of their, their trump card to, uh, you know to work the magic that the, you know, 0.01% wants to work around the world while still keeping like the pretense of, you know, democracy and the rule of law in place. So it's for Garrison beyond just the CIA. It's like, what is, what is the CIA represent as a social force? And Garrison felt the whole weight of it. And so, you know, that's why they turn them into sort of a punchline because that's that's the kind of power they have. The democracy and all that is just the cover story. I mean, the real mission of the CIA is is to make sure that there are natural resources and cheap labor and and markets that are sympathetic to U.S. corporate interests. And you put your finger on it when you said it's to serve the the you know the point one percent who really are the uh, the hidden ruling class and who you know that's their mission. Yeah, that's why they they overthrow governments. That's why they put in puppet governments, uh, particularly in places where natural resources are crucial, or cheap labor is crucial, or markets that need to be exploited. Those that's their mission. It's not about democracy. It has nothing to do with it. That's yeah, just and when you. <laughs> right. That's what El- Ellsberg says this uh, uh, repeatedly in, in interviews and talks. He, he talks about America as a covert empire, which the first time I heard it, I thought that's not inaccurate, but, you know, maybe like very simple, but probably apt for that way. But, but the more that you think about it, it's like, it is like a covert operation has a cover story and so on. But the covert empire has not just cover stories for individual things like, you know, the Kennedy assassination or the, you know, Operation Ajax in Iran, things like that. But the myths, the covert, the, the myths, the, the cover myths, I guess, that are like, you can't even call them stories. They're just overarching myths about 
you know, freedom, democracy, uh, yeah. capitalism, and how yeah. capitalism holds people accountable and that you have to really succeed according to the rules of the market to like be victorious. But then these things come along like, uh, you know, the stolen elections of 2000 and probably 2004 and so on, or the big bailouts where it's like by their own, you know, yeah. capitalist myths of like, well, we have to succeed based on this money logic that we put out, but then they wreck the whole thing and are basically broke. And then they just, oh, we'll just create a bazillion dollars out of thin air to yeah. to, re to revive the system. So it's all just a series of myths that well, of course are intertwined. The, the, the myth about democracy is belied by the, the fact that you have countries where there are elections that are held, and, and like in Iran in 1953 and in Guatemala and in Chile in 1973, uh, you know, they overthrow. All these, these are elected governments. They are democratic already. And every single one of them is overthrown by covert CIA action because they don't want democracy. They want governments that are sympathetic to their interests. That's their mission. It has nothing to do with democracy. Remember what Kissinger said about the, the overthrow of Allende? He said, words of the effect, I don't see why we should just sit back and watch a country go communist just because the people voted for it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, he, he did a flip-flop on that because initially his first response, and this is recorded, he said, yeah, whatever. Antar or he said, um, Chile is a dagger aimed at the heart of Antarctica, right? Like like it didn't matter. But but David Rockefeller, who was his patron, you know, in his memoir, he takes credit for like, I was the one who let them know that what Chile, Chile was doing was unacceptable. Because one of the things Chile was doing was saying, your companies have made uh, exorbitant profits. And so we're going to take those, calculate them and subtract that from the debt that you say we owe the banks. And when you, that debt mechanism is another one of those pillars of control, which now it's not just third world countries, but really most of the U.S. public that it's used against to just as a system of control. And he threatened it. And so he, he died on, you know, 9-11, 1973. Garrison mentioning those three little letters, CIA, was so crucial and why it was so threatening and dangerous to those people who, who, who run this whole system. Because if what Garrison knew was, and what he said was, I don't know what Shaw did exactly. He said, I knew that I had them by the little toe and I knew I was not going to let go. But what that meant was, that they, the powers that be understood that this whole thing could come unraveled if that little toe became, you know, the, 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 ex, the rest was exposed. And once you open up the words Central Intelligence Agency uh, and what they actually do, that threatens to expose the whole system. And that's why Garrison was so dangerous and why they could not allow this to happen. By the way, Zach, that's exactly what Shaw said. He said to an assistant at the trademark, words of the effect, Garrison is on to something big, okay? And I know that some people in high places are going to have to help me in order to stop him from exposing the whole thing, okay? <laughs> there you go. And it, yeah. just, well, it wasn't just about the assassination. It's, it's what the assassination represents and, yes. and, and the power that's behind that and why he had to be eliminated.
to protect the way that system functions. And Garrison was, he had by the little toe. He didn't know what he had. He really didn't. Yeah, I've come to believe that some, the establishment, you know, that was responsible for this, and it was, initially it could be thought of as, oh, it was Cold War hysteria and their anti-communism, and perhaps people in the Joint Chiefs and other elites thought, well, he's talking to Castro, he's talking to Khrushchev, this, is, this amounts to treason of some kind. But it, it, it really sets the stage for, I mean, he's writing this, Garrison's writing his memoir in, 19, in the 80s, Reagan is president, he really, rep- Reagan represents the sort of culmination of the victory of these, these forces, because really, and it's, this is really the case after Watergate, there's no room in the political establishment for reformers like, you know, like an FDR, like a Reagan, like a Henry Wallace, like RFK. Like these, these people are gone as viable, uh, you know, constituencies within the governing elite. And we painted ourselves into a corner, I think, with the wealth inequality, the climate crisis, and these other issues where we have total inertia, you know, and cannot do anything because of this political, I don't even want to call it a stalemate. It's more like the top-down dominance of these forces. But an exposure of something like the Kennedy assassination might be the kind of uh, catalyst for examining our whole system of governance. And it almost, it seems to me that the elites are not going to escape from the crises that they are presiding over now and that you know maybe it's almost in their interest to like actually say hey this happened a long time ago and and we need to readjust our you know our system and and not just hold on to like global dominance by any means necessary because it's actually threatening us all well that that may be i mean if they're smart they will they will realize that but uh greed is is often and trump's smart (laughs) but but um but that's why I think, you know, the, the movie itself, well, I think one of the reasons it hit such a raw nerve was that I think I, I, I liken it to the scene in Wizard of Oz, you know, where the where the Toto, the little dog, pulls back the curtain and you see what's going on behind, the, you know, the curtain. And I think for, for a lot of people, they had this vague feeling that there was something weird going on and that they didn't know what was going on behind the scenes and that they were being lied to and all this. But they didn't have a way to articulate it. It was not had not been expressed. And here comes this movie that says it for them. And I think that's why it touched touched such a raw nerve was that it was like pulling back the curtain and saying, wait a minute, this is something we all sort of thought about and talked about in our living rooms, but nobody actually said it. And here is this movie that says it. And that's I think part of the reason it was successful. I saw uh, Zach on the Charlie Rose show when he was sharing the uh, stage with Nicholas Lemon. All right. uh, This was shocking. Nicholas Lemon actually compared JFK to Birth of a Nation. Okay. He said it was a brilliant cinematic feat, but the message was so awful that it was sort of like birth of a nation, all right? Now, we since found out that Nicholas Lemon's uncle was one of the CIA station chiefs in New Orleans. He never, and he never revealed this. I, you know, I, I kind of found it out with a declassified document. And then right. I called, I called uh, 
Lemons, uh, he's, he's a lawyer, his office. And I said, what relationship is this guy to Nicholas Lemon? Because oh, he's his uncle. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. All right. And then Nicholas Lemon, you know, if you can believe it, Zach, and you probably know this, he's now gone on to be this kind of a, a dean at a journalistic school. Not a dean. He was the dean of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, which I graduated from and taught at. And he became the dean of, 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 the, of the Columbia Journalism School. It's a very prestigious position and a very powerful position because that school, unfortunately, uh, has become just a, a training ground like, a, you know, like the uh, farm team for, for corporate media. And they get all their funding, and you can see, you walk in the lobby, and there's all the plaques from, you know, Viacom and Sony and, you know, Fox and, you know, all the big corporate media that donate to it. It's no longer an independent journalism school. You know, Columbia University is a nonprofit university, supposedly. No, this is all supported by big corporate media. And Nicholas Lemon presided over this. And that's what they're doing is they're training people to go out and work in this big corporate media. When I went there, it was 1973. It was a class. Uh, I went there because I was inspired by Woodward and Bernstein. And my whole class was inspired by Woodward and Bernstein. We thought, oh, we're, you know, this is the way you actually can change things is go into journalism. And at that time, the school was sort of independent. I wouldn't say that they were uh, progressive or radical, but at least they were not just a farm team for, for big corporate media, but that's all changed. Now it really is. It's all supported by big corporate media. And Nicholas Lemon was a perfect choice for them because he is that. Nicholas Lemon, in case your listeners don't know, nobody ever heard of this guy until he wrote this cover story for GQ. And it was, it was about Jim Garrison. The, the picture on the cover was JFK smoking a cigar. But if you read this story, it's really about Jim Garrison. It was really a trashing of yeah. Jim Garrison. And from what I understand, and I followed that story, they got more letters for that Thank story you. than any other story that they ever read up until that time. You know, and you replied to it, didn't you? Yes. And all the letters were, were negative about Lemon. Uh, one of my classmates uh, from journalism school uh, who succeeded me at Juris Doctor, the legal magazine I used to edit, became an executive editor at GQ, and he was the editor of that piece. And <laughs> that's why he allowed me to re reply to it. But he told me that virtually every letter, they, what you said is right, they got more letters about that piece than they'd ever gotten about any other piece they'd ever published. And virtually every letter was trashing Nicholas Lemon. <laughs> that's true. That's really something. Yeah. And so, so that's I, where that's where Nicholas it, Lemon came from. That's where he came from. Well, he had written a book that was very prominently reviewed, you know, about uh, black migration to the north, and that was what made his original reputation. But you know, I think once he did that piece, I think they realized they could count on him. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And he was a close friend of Tom Bethel. Okay. Yeah. So Tom <laughs> Bethel was the volunteer who turned over all the of Garrison's files to the to 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 uh Shaw's defense team. Right. Right. Yeah. And admitted it in a book that he wrote yeah, later. He did. 
It's not like we're speculating about this. The guy admitted he went and infiltrated as a volunteer and took all the files and handed them over to the to Charles right. Defense team. So I, I have a in the in, in the vein of a you know the slander that the, the Stone and the film and Garrison receive. I have a, a passage here that. It was from you mentioned the Chicago Tribune was the first one to write about the film and that it was before it uh, was released even. So the date was May 19th, 1991. And as you said, the film comes out in December of 1991. And it's John Margolis. And he writes towards the end here. um, Stone is one of those who sees conspiracies everywhere. We have a fascist security state running the country. He told a Los Angeles Times interviewer Orwell did happen but it's so subtle that no one noticed in quote from stone there. And Margolis goes on to say at the end of the piece, there is a point at which intellectual myopia becomes morally repugnant. Stone's new movie proves that he has passed that point, but then so has time Warner. And so will anyone who pays American money to see the film. So the film hasn't even released yet. This is not just not released. It hasn't even gone into production yet. And it's based, what he's basing it on is a stolen early draft of, of the screenplay. And well, by I, the I, way, I, I think, didn't he attack you again in 2013? Yes. At the 50th? Yeah. So it's That's not like 50th. this is a one-shot thing. It's a campaign. Yeah. I'm trying to remember <laughs> if it's the same guy. Um no, it, it, it's oh, the Chicago it? Tribune, but it was a guy named uh, Corey Franklin who writes okay. there. And, and he attacks again, yeah. And I had to re- reply to that, too, yeah. But it's the same well, publication, I, the Chicago same Tribune, publication, right? It's a yeah. different writer, yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to reiterate that he says, <laughs> you have passed the point of being morally repugnant, you know, for making the movie. Okay, that's a dubious assertion. But then to go on and say that, you know, also in this realm of the morally repugnant beyond moral repugnancy, even are anybody who goes to see the film, which is it made $200 million. So this guy, he has a lot of condemnation, I guess, for a big swath of the population. I mean, I, I, as you said, no film has been attacked that way, but Parenti, when he wrote, uh, you know, one of his books, he writes about the thing about JFK not only was it the first film that was attacked before it was even, you know, in production or actually being filmed, he writes, Parenti writes, JFK is the only movie I know that continues to be attacked four years after its run. Now, which is itself pretty astounding, but it's also, he understates it because he couldn't know at the time. But in 2017, the Washington Post writes, um, John F. Kennedy's assassination uh, documents are going to be made public next week. They write, historians may have to hold their noses and thank JFK, a 1991 blockbuster that conflated the historical record with conspiratorial fantasies. So it's actually being attacked, you know, over 20 years after its uh, after its release. I mean, it's 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 got that has to be a, you know, a record that will never be matched. Well, so much for for freedom of expression and, and democracy. Right. I mean. These are people who would like like to censor what what's out there, you know, and that's that's uh, that's serious. See, the thing the thing is, and to put to put the film in historical context, you had a lot of books on this subject. Okay, plenty of them. I think about nine hundred by the time Oliver's film came out. Right. But 
those books, 99% of them didn't sell very well. And the ones that did sell, you know, like Rush to Judgment and Best Evidence were kind of old, you know. And so, but Oliver was the first guy to put all this together into one mosaic, into one package. And the American public looked at this and they said, my God, is this really true? Is is this what the, the mainstream press has been selling us? You know, they really didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah. And it was shocking. It was really shocking. Well, also, you know, I think that's why uh, Oliver was attacked so mercilessly in the press. And he continues to be. I mean, there was a time there where you couldn't see his name in the press without saying, you know, conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, Oliver Stone. Uh, and I think it really had a huge uh, impact on his on his career. I mean, I think the idea was to try to, uh, you know, silence people, basically frighten people uh, from making controversial films. And in large part, it succeeded. Uh, you know, when you when you attack someone like that uh, relentlessly in the media, there are not that many people that can stand up to it. Oliver happens to be one who could because he likes to fight and he fight, fought and he made a decision. He was going to reply to every attack. But I think it did influence his career. I think it limited what he could do, you know, uh, in Hollywood. He had been at the top of the heap, and then all of a sudden, now he's considered this crazy uh, conspiracy nut. Um, and that's, I think, the the, the dampening effect uh, that, that that kind of criticism, ha- you know, has, and it's it's very dangerous. Um, and it's 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 succeeded. I mean, when you think about what's being put out there, uh, you know, what kind of movies are being made. I mean, Oliver is not, you know, he, he made this movie about Edward Snowden. He couldn't get financing here. He had to go to Germany to get for financing. Um, you know, it's very hard to get movies like this made now. You can't. It, it, things have changed. You know, it, it's corporate media, just what we were talking about. And now they're all, you know, they're all merged into one. You know, the, the newspapers and magazines, uh, movies, uh, you know, streaming, all of it is, you know, they're all owned by the same big corporations. So, you know, if they, if they decide to intimidate someone who's, who's going to threaten that, they have the power to do it. And it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's scary. And and I think Oliver has somehow weathered it, but, but I think he was wounded for a long time. I think, you know, it was very hard on him. And I think you're right. The, the other people got the message. When Emilio Estevez did his movie about Bobby Kennedy, you know, they they asked him that question. You know, they said, you're, you're, you're aware that there's a lot of questions about about the shooting of Robert Kennedy, et cetera. And he goes, yes, I am aware of that. But I didn't want to get Oliver stoned. OK. <laughs> so, yeah. So Zach says that was a warning shot. OK. To these other producers, directors, actors, don't do what Oliver did or we'll do the same thing to you that we did to him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I see it. Oh, uh, Sarah's pointing out to me something I have to look at, which is a, a bird in our tree. Giant owl. Oh, my God, it's an owl. Yes, I see. We it. have a nice blue hair oh, that wow. lives on campus, which is pretty cool. Oh, yes, I saw it. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, sorry. sorry, but I had to see that. It was a... Sorry. <laughs> 
Yeah, we we have a big blue hair and that's on campus. That's like pretty yeah. spectacular. So the, I can I can relate. The, the, the thing about the movie, okay, is that and 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 the part of the story that the media doesn't want to tell you is that the ARB justified just about everything that was in the film. You know, and and there's been very little coverage of what that review board did. And that's one of the reasons Oliver wanted to do this documentary is that he wanted to bring it up to date to show the American public. Look, all these new documents are essentially justifying what was in my movie. And why isn't the media telling you about this if this is the case? And it is the case, you know. And when are we going to see your movie uh, in the U.S.? Do we have any idea yet? No, we, we we don't have a North American sale yet. Okay, but that's graceful. Yeah. It, all right. It's sold in Australia and New Zealand. It's sold in France. It's sold in Germany. It's sold in Spain. It's sold in Italy. It's sold in all the countries of Scandinavia, and it's it's going to sell in the United Kingdom very soon. All right, but we don't have a North American sale yet. Okay. Well, sooner or later. I hope See, but what Oliver is doing, if you if you notice this, he's he's kind of doing this sideways. He did all these interviews at the Cannes Film Festival. He got that rousing standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. And the the interview he did for RT, that has one million views now. All right. Yeah. And the trailer for the film, which is very skillfully done, that is about two hundred and fifty thousand views. Wow. So he's he's trying to come in sideways to raise enough attention that somebody will sooner or later have to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Listen, um, are we going to go much longer? Because I, I will wrap it. I can wrap it up okay. here, actually, with okay. a question for you. Um, so, Zach, as we wrap up here, what do you think that in 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 twenty twenty one, the thirtieth anniversary of the release of the film? And you've had a lot of time to think about the film and its impact. What do you think is the legacy of this film at this point in history? Well, I look, I think that, as I said, the the film was a turning point for many people in that it, it drew back the curtain on on what I call the invisible government. Um, we have had a, a secret organization, which is the intelligence community, basically, that that has, we don't know anything about how much money they spend. We don't know what their budget is. We don't know uh, all their, all the things they do. It's a very secretive organization. And it, it has been running things around the world in our name, but without our uh, without accountability, essentially. And I think that this film, for the first time, really revealed that in a popular, I mean, in a popular way. I mean, there were books about this. There were people who knew about it. Covert Action certainly knew about it. Uh, and a lot of the books that we published at Sheridan, Sp- uh, Sheridan Square Press and a lot of other books knew about it. But in a big, broad popular movie, it opened people to the idea that all the the cover stories about, you know, the U.S. is the greatest country on earth and it's democracy and we, you know, we're spreading all this to the rest of the world. 
all, that all that is just a, a big lie. And that what's really going on here is, is, is that we're benefiting from this system uh, and it, we're, we're benefiting on the backs of people all over the world whose cheap labor and whose resources are being taken because the CIA has assured that the governments who run those countries are sympathetic to U.S. interests. And when I say U.S. interests, I don't mean the people of the U.S. I mean corporate U.S. corporate interests. That, of course, does benefit our people. We have the greatest wealth in the world. We also, it's not equally distributed, obviously. But this system, the way it runs now, is benefits us. And we are responsible. And it, it's time for us to wake up. And to see that we are benefiting from a system that is really, really uh, unfair and and is actually morally repugnant, to use the Chicago Tribune's <laughs> words. And um, so if that was the first inkling of that for some people, then that's a good thing that that film did. And, you know, it benefited from the fact that President Kennedy was a very popular figure that it was a mystery story that was like the biggest, you know, most, most interesting uh, puzzle of the 20th century, you know, who did it. Uh, so, so it had a lot of commercial pull to it. But I think if it revealed that what's, what's really going on with this invisible government, then that was, that was a positive contribution. And I think a lot more people are aware now of the way this system works and the inherent unfairness in it. And hopefully there are a lot more young people who are going to build on that and, and work to, to change that. That about wraps up this episode. The American Exception podcast traces its name back to my 2015 article, American Exception, Hegemony, and the Dissimulation of the State. That piece was, to my knowledge, the first scholarly work to grapple with the deep state in a respected U.S. academic journal. The article then grew into my 2020 dissertation at Temple University, American Exception, Hegemony, and the Tripartite State. And that dissertation grew into a book that will be published by Skyhorse in 2022 with the title American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You can pre-order the book through the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening and keep chasing the light. <laughs>